Hello, and welcome to Enlightened Empaths, a community for the spiritually awakened. Denise and I are so happy to have you join us. We had a lovely and positive and flurry of responses to our interview last week with Tony talking about addiction and the impact it has on family members and friends connected to the addict. So Denise and I thought we would continue that topic this week and talk about the empath and codependency. Denise, unfortunately, you and I have some experience in this topic. (laughs) Way too much, yes. So we are not experts, but we are experiencers Mm -hmm. of what it is like to be connected to uh, an alcoholic or an addict in in our lives. Um, I think I've shared many times on the show that my father was an alcoholic and has been in AA since 1986, so we're very, very proud of him. Um, but it does have its impact on a child. Um, and I know you've shared your own experience with connections to uh, addicts. And mm-hmm. it, it has an impact no matter how you know them, whether it's, you know, a friend, uh, a child, a parent, a partner, a spouse. It definitely has an impact, especially on the empath. So one of the things I thought I wanted to start with, Denise, is if it's okay with you, is to just read, um, it's called The Laundry List, and it's 14 Traits of an Adult Child of an Alcoholic. And I just wanted to read them, and then I wanted you to kind of take over and talk about codependent traits. And I thought we could compare and discuss the two and how they are very, very connected. Yes, that sounds perfect. So this is from adultchildren.org. And it lists 14 traits of an adult child raised in a home with an addict. Number one, we become isolated and afraid of people and authority figures. Two, we become approval seekers and lose our identity in the process. That was something that Tony talked about a little bit, that chameleon feeling where you feel as though you have to fit into whatever group you're with in the moment. I think as adult children or children of of an alcoholic or an addict, you always want to keep the peace. So you're always seeking to keep everybody happy in that moment, you know, that walking on eggshells feeling. And I think that's how the people pleaser is born. Three, we are frightened by angry people and any personal criticism. Four, we either become alcoholics, marry them or both, or find another compulsive personality trait, such as workaholic to fulfill our abandonment needs. Five, we live life from the viewpoint of victims, and we are attracted by that weakness in our love and friendship relationship. Six, we have an overdeveloped sense of responsibility, and it is easier for us to be concerned with others rather than ourselves. This enables us not to look too closely at our own faults. Seven, we feel guilty when we stand up for ourselves instead of giving in to others. Eight, we become addicted to excitement. Nine, we confuse love and pity and tend to love people we can pity and rescue. Ten, we have stuffed our feelings from our traumatic childhoods and have lost the ability to feel or express our feelings because it hurts so much. Eleven, we judge ourselves harshly and have a very low sense of self-esteem. Twelve, We tend to be dependent personalities who are afraid of abandonment and will do anything to hold on to a relationship. Thirteen, 
Alcoholism is a family disease, and we become para-alcoholics who take on the characteristics of that disease, even though we do not pick up a drink. Fourteen, para-alcoholics are reactors in life rather than actors. So that was written in 1978. Um, I can relate to some of those as an adult child of an alcoholic, but I do not relate to all 14 of those. Mm -hmm. What do you think? I agree. I was listening to the list, and I've read the list before in the past, and certain things still ring true, and, and they're always key points that I have to work on throughout my life, and it's been a, a, a pattern throughout, you know, different aspects and different, different decades of time. Uh, so I, I think that we can, it doesn't necessarily mean if you only got three or four of them that you don't have those character, that those tendencies to be an adult child. And I want to tell you what Tony said as far as it might not be, he listed the five different aspects of, you know, it might be work or religion, drugs, alcohol. Right, right. I mean, there are other addiction behaviors because I hit enough of those to if someone was having me do a checklist, they would say, you're an adult child, even though neither of my parents drank. Maybe they'd have like a rum and Coke once a year. So it wasn't. Right. I shared before about what a difference um, Melody Beatty's work, her book, Codependent No More and Beyond Codependency, were such a turning point in my life. And I did get into a 12-step program for codependency uh, when I was trying to find the strength to leave a very... Um, disruptive situation in my life. And she breaks down codependence into um, different categories. And, you know, codependence may fall into that caretaking mode, low self-worth, repression, obsession, controlling, denial, dependency, poor communication, weak boundaries, lack of trust, anger, sex problems, and then all the other things that tie it all together. That, uh, and, I, and she also makes it clear throughout all of her work that this is a progressive disease as much as any other addiction and how physically that can impact you with, you know, maybe feeling lethargic or depressed or withdrawn and isolated um, and all of things that you might equate with someone who is uh, withdrawing from an actual substance or addiction, codependents also are going to usually do or have been known to, I'm going to preface that, to have similar physical reactions to uh, withdrawing from whatever they're addicted to for a person. Well, and I think as empaths, we feel so strongly for everyone and everything on this earth. And that one trait, confusing love with pity, I think uh, really resonates for me because if I feel bad for someone, I do want to help them. And it's hard to see the difference sometimes with those boundaries. And I think that's connected to being an empath more than anything else. It, and uh, that's so funny. That's in my notes as well as what a fine line it is between codependency and, and being an empath because so many of the traits and characteristics seem to overlap. And she mentions that in the caretaking, codependents may feel anxiety, pity, and guilt when other people have a problem. But we suck it up like a sponge and want to fix it or feel responsible mm -hmm. for it or feel like we have to help them figure out what to do and, and then get angry when someone doesn't 
when that, that help isn't, it doesn't work or someone is closed off to it. Because I think generally we're coming from a good place. And she says that, I haven't read this in, in many years, but she said at once, she, these are some of the nicest people you're ever going to meet or codependents. They're kind, they're thoughtful, they're genuine. It's not a form of manipulation. It's more trying to come very similar to an empath, coming from a place of heart and trust. And I'm not saying that for everyone is a blanket statement, but a lot of codependents are really truly are some of the nicest people you're ever going to meet. Yeah, I agree. Go ahead. Oh, no, it's just, it ties in with that trying to please everybody, trying to keep everybody happy, not wanting the waves. So that makes sense why they'd be really nice people or, or appear to be. Yeah, I agree. And I, but I think that in that appearance of kindness, there's something off there. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, um, I know sometimes when I'm trying to help someone who is just not the nicest person and not really needing help, other friends will say, gosh, Samantha, you're so nice. You're so forgiving. And I think, I don't know that that's what's compelling me to help this person. I, it's, I think it's more that, that sense of responsibility. Yes. I agree. You know, that more than kindness. I almost feel like, well, no one else is going to do it, so I better step in and help this person. And then, you know, I'm the one that ends up drained and exhausted. And so it doesn't, it doesn't really help anyone in the long run. And I, I, from listening to all the, the wonderful feedback we've gotten from many of our listeners on, on Facebook or in our email, um, they have all said, gosh, you know, Tony spoke about that. In, in so such detail that I recognized myself and what so many listeners said is that they shared the interview with their moms or their dads or their siblings to say, Hey, I think, I think we recognize ourselves in this discussion. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think just opening up to that discussion. I, I remember when I first heard the term codependent, I was like, that's not me. I mean, I'm a very strong woman. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not fearless, but I'm, pretty fearless. You know, I mean, I, I take risks. I'm not afraid. I'm not a worrier. I'm not controlling. Um, I do not define myself as weak. I don't see myself that way. And so when I started reading her books, I was like, no, this isn't me. But there are aspects of codependency that definitely are me. And I think they are rooted in being raised in a home with an alcoholic but I think they're also rooted in being raised as an empath. And I don't know what comes first, you know, does the empath come first or does the child of an alcoholic come first? I don't know, but I do think that they're very, very connected. And what I see a lot in my work as an intuitive, a lot of clients and students who come to me say, I was so psychic when I was a child and I don't know what happened. It just kind of shut down. Now I know that's normal, I mean, we all kind of shut down our intuitive ability when we go through the hormonal stage of teenage years and the busy years of putting our career and life together. But I also think that if you're very empathic and codependent, oftentimes you'll naturally shut down your intuition as a protective defense because of that fear of feeling things and feeling too much. Often I think there can be a lot of sadness involved for someone who's codependent because it's, it's a, it can be a very helpless feeling of I'm trying and falling into that if I was this or maybe if I was 
prettier or smarter or tried harder. You get into all those head games that go along with that. It, I guess it ties in with that low self-worth piece of not being enough. And mm-hmm. we've shared that a lot of times. Empaths, because we do feel things so strongly, we do struggle with, am I doing enough? Am I enough with just the way I am? And for, for many, many people, I think that's a work in progress. And with the shifts of energy that are happening right now, that feels even more prevalent than it ever has, of finding our own self-worth and, and trusting our own inner knowing and guidance to, to move into this next chapter. And that's where, if you read Traits of a Codependent or Traits of an Adult Children of, of an Addict, one of the common traits between the two is reacting to things rather than acting to things. And I want to talk about that for a moment because people might go, well, what's the difference? When you are presented with a problem, oftentimes codependents will react to it, meaning they will let the other person make all the decisions about how that problem is going to be handled. And then they react to it rather than looking at the problem by themselves within their own boundaries and strength and saying, how do I feel about this? What do I want to do about this? And taking action based on that. That's to me, the difference. Do you want to add to that? I I really like the way you describe that. And what flashed in my head is you and I've chatted about this when we're doing readings. Yes. We'll bring through information, but we also, um, Generally, I will ask, does this resonate with you? Does this make sense? You're trying to help people connect it to their own inner light. And I've heard you do the same thing with folks. And anything that we can do, if you need validation to find that you are on the right track. Yeah, I I just think it's important for codependents and empaths in particular to learn to go throughout their life acting and not reacting, meaning Think about your life as though you are the CEO of a company called you rather than an employee of your own life. I think codependents tend to give their power away so often, whether it's to the addict or whether it's to the boss or or their partner or their best friend. And what happens, I think this is where passive aggression rears its ugly head because I've seen codependents in my own life, um, you know, their, their spouse or partner will say, gosh, you know, I really don't like my job. I think I just want to move and have a whole new shift. And my friend will tell me, I don't want to move. I don't want to leave this job. I don't want a whole new change. And I don't think it's going to work out. And I'll say, well, then you need to share that. Now I don't want to start a fight and, you know, I'm just a stay at home mom. So I'm just going to have to let him make the decision. And then he makes the decision and they move and she's miserable and then she's angry and it comes, it spills out in all these little ways and then tension builds. Whereas if in that moment, when that decision was presented, if you had shared your opinion, Hey, I don't, I'm not ready right now for a move or you to change jobs because of these five concerns, then all that buildup of tension and miscommunication down the road could have been prevented. That's what I mean by reacting versus acting. Right. And that does tie in with if you are truly deep ass in a codependent relationship with someone who's actively in the throes of addiction, finding the strength to find, so that it doesn't become adversarial or it doesn't rip the bandaid off. That's huge. That is so huge because 
and I've shared this different folks I've known who, who have had where I've got to practice my codependency skills. We'll, we'll rephrase that. Uh, there were times when they weren't coming from a sane place. They weren't the person that I knew or that I loved. And so what you're saying is so, so vital of shoring those thoughts and feelings up with yourself. You have to find that inner strength or find a reason to cling on to, 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 advocate for yourself to get that inner strength, whether it's your children, whether it's your safety, whether it's your financial situation, whether it's needing to, to pull back the reins and get your life back. You, you nailed it a few minutes ago, Samantha. We're not talking about weak, wishy-washy, dishrag people. We're talking about strong, independent, resourceful, creative. You have to be to live in the situation with someone who's an active addict. You get really okay. damn good at figuring shit out. I'm sorry about all the cuss words right. in the string there, but um, this is a very passionate subject for me. And I think that a lot of times people will judge or they'll say, oh, well, why didn't you leave earlier? Or how, why did you put up with that? Unless you've lived in that situation, I don't think you get a vote. I agree. I agree. <laughs> and some of the ways you can start to shift that in your own life is to recognize why you are doing it in the first place. If you are constantly giving your power to a spouse, a partner, a boss, a child, a friend, what have you, a parent, really try to be honest with yourself. And that's hard for the codependent, but it can be done. And try to look at what is my, again, if we're looking at your life as a CEO, look at a cost benefit analysis, caving into this demand. What's the cost to me? What's the benefit to me? Looking at it very clinically can often be comfortable for the codependent who's afraid to get to the raw, sore spot of the emotions within. And if you look at what's the payoff, I think, you know, for me, I always enjoyed keeping the peace. So that was mm -hmm. the payoff for me. You know, I'll suck it up this today because I just want to have a good day. But I've known other codependents where I think the source of them, them giving their power away is a fear of failure. Let me explain, like, I've seen a lot of friends give their power to their spouses because if something goes, if that ship goes down and, and he made all those decisions for that ship to sink, then she doesn't have to take any responsibility and she can blame him. Mm -hmm. And there's no fear of failure. And that's that passive aggressive codependency tie in that I just don't like. Mm -hmm. Um. And so I think, I think we have to get really, really honest and clear about why are we giving our power away? What's, what's the cost benefit? You know, what's in it for us? What are we getting back? You know, for me, whenever I gave my power away, I was getting back a peaceful day. Now, it, the, the cost of that wasn't worth the benefit. No. It, <laughs> it took me a long time to figure that out. And that's one of the things, you know, when Melody Beatty mentions that denial aspect of being a codependent, you know, either ignoring things or pretending they aren't happening. It's, and one of my key phrases that I use for was, it's not that bad. It's really not that bad. I can get through this. I can take, because you, you get, it wears you down. There's no other way to put it, but it also changes your perception of things that, when you, when you get on the other side of things and you look back, you say, oh my gosh, that was so messed up. How could I have thought that was normal? How could I have thought that was okay? 
but when you're in the throes of it, it it's your existence and it's confusing and, and you might get over busy so you don't deal with it. Or you might, as you mentioned, become a workaholic or overeat or pretend they aren't happening or that hyper-focus on the things that are good to the exclusion of all the things that aren't. Mm-hmm. You know, I was listening to this woman, she wrote a book. It wasn't on Stockholm Syndrome, but it was on all these women who had been kidnapped and held for a long time. Remember that man in Ohio who held those mm-hmm. poor women for so long? It was after that, and she wrote a book about the psychological tendencies. And she was being interviewed by Terry Gross on Fresh Air. And I remember she said, one of the best things about humans is also their worst flaw. And that is our ability to adapt to the surroundings we are in. Now, she was applying that to very drastic situations with these kidnapping victims. But I thought, man, you can apply that to anything in your life. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think a lot of empathic codependents get stuck in relationships that are not healthy. Because we are such people pleasers. We are chameleons. We are peacemakers. We are kind and altruistic. But we're also incredibly adaptable. Which is why my second point one of the ways to get out of this codependent cycle is to find help and find your tribe. Mm -hmm. This is why I am such an advocate of therapy because to have a trained professional listen to you and look at your situation and go, that's not good. You know, Mm -hmm. I remember when I first went to see Dr. Bennett, my therapist and he was, and I would tell him things that were going on and, first thing he said was, you got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> my, um, my sister and I, we went to a therapist in our 20s to talk about our relationship with our parents. And I remember we would meet him once a week at 6 a.m. before work. Wow. And yeah, and we would walk out of there and we'd have a cup of coffee before we had to go to our prospective jobs. And we would look at each other and we would go, wow, like he really validated that. It was so eye-opening and so empowering. I just really can't recommend it enough to anyone who has ever been in a dysfunctional or codependent relationship. And, and I just want to make an aside real quick because therapy is always a financial sacrifice for me. And so I just want to tell people, if you're listening to this and going, yeah, that's really nice, Samantha, but I don't have 150 bucks an hour to spend once a week. I get it. There are a lot of resources. There are many therapists and social workers who work on a sliding scale. More and more are taking insurance, but those that, uh, those of you who don't have insurance, there is usually at least one facility in town that refers people out. Um, So like you can call, you know, uh, one of the, like you could call your social work uh, main office in your town, for example, and ask for therapists that either work on a sliding scale or work pro bono. And they and, are out and there. They, and that's incredible, incredible resources. And I want to jump the fence even further with when I was going through this, the situation where I had to really look in the mirror and, and start delving into this topic. I lived in the middle of nowhere. I had no friends or family around. And this isn't a no poor me. It's just to, because I know there are people listening to this that are in very rural parts of the country 
or who are in situations where they don't have access to resources and get online, find an online community because Samantha, you, you couldn't have said that more eloquently of you have to find people who get it because then it normalizes it. When you start reading or talking or hearing people describe what your life is like, and I mean, I can remember sitting, and I did, I did an online support thing because of the, the circumstances in my life, but also because I wanted the anonymity. I wanted to I, it's a, if you're in a place where you just don't know which way to turn, we are so blessed that we're in the, the age of being able to get online and find like-minded people. And if it doesn't resonate for you, just delete and go somewhere else. Move so I on. think if you, right. yes, but just to hear someone or to hear, listen to someone's story or read something and someone who knows what it's like to live in that fear-based place or that overwhelmed place it's, it's priceless. You, I can't put enough emphasis on how important that is. I agree. I, I just think there's a point where you have to move away from that online chat room oh, yes. to a professional. Um, <clears throat> excuse me for coughing. Um, I remember after Mike had his brain injury, I would go on all these brain injury support groups and I would just cry. I would mm -hmm. just be in my office till 3 a.m. crying because it was just spouses and parents complaining about how miserable and awful it was to take care of a brain injured person. And I, it, it was validating. It was nice to go, Oh, I didn't know that was a symptom of the brain injury or so it was informative and it was validating. But after like a month of doing that, I was like, this is not helping me. This is just making me feel sad. And so right. then I had to, you know, move forward to a therapist who could say, yeah, this is really hard and here's what you do and here's how you can start to empower yourself. So I think that the two should go hand in hand. Yes, I agree. And, but fine, it doesn't, whatever you're most comfortable with, at least take a step in that direction. It, mm -hmm. I, I said this on the show with, with Tony as well. It really, it, I was angry that I had to do the work and had to do all this stuff because I wasn't the one that was throwing the wrench into so many lives. I wasn't the one that was actively in at that time in my life. I didn't think I had the problem. And then when you start doing the work and start facing that and looking at your, your, your own reflection in the mirror, rather than looking out at what's causing it, it truly is your problem. It is your addiction to that person or that situation. And the only way you can switch it is to look inside and change yourself. That is hard. And I think some people spend lifetimes figuring that out. When Tony said, you cannot have an addict without an enabler. Mm -hmm. That was very, wow. I remember when my dad was in rehab, my mom and I had to go to the family therapy sessions. And you all just have to picture my mom. I mean, she's just a force of nature. <laughs> and she's very snobby and she's always dressed to the nines and she just walks in with this air of confidence and beauty and and she walks into this room and she's uh when they said like okay so everyone you know tell us a little bit about your story and it gets to my mom and i i can't do her you know she's got this very deep smoker's voice and this very strong boston accent and and she's like well first of all i just have to say that i do not belong here with you people <laughs> like my husband is not like the normal alcoholic he never gets angry he's never acted out if anything he gets even nicer when he drinks if that's possible because 
he is the kindest man that has ever walked this earth. So I don't know why I'm here. And the counselor said, um, have you ever called in sick for your husband? And she just stopped and she was like, oh, yes, yeah, several times. That's what a wife does. Have you ever made excuses for him when he couldn't show up to a party? Well, sure. Isn't that what a wife does? Like she mm-hmm. resisted it every single time. And even to this day, she has a hard time admitting, you know, her part as an enabler because she's such a strong, such a strong woman. She could never see herself as a codependent. Okay. But when you just said that, it triggered that, you know, I mentioned my parents didn't drink, but they came from families where there was an issue. So back a generation. So they were bringing Mm -hmm. those traits in. They were coming in as adult child teaching us. So we grew up thinking that was normal in a family. So I, I have to, agree with what your mom's saying that's what a good wife does or that's what a wife does if you've been brought up to think this is what you do in a family and that's your normal then that makes perfect sense why it's so hard to step over that line and say holy shit part of this is mine to own too does that make sense yeah. it totally does yeah it, and, and i think what happens too you know again my my dad really is one of the kindest people you'll ever meet so he, this doesn't fall into him, but I think a lot of addicts are very good manipulators. And when you do try to stand up to them and say, no, I'm not calling in sick for you today, they can say, but you're my wife. Like, I need your help. And especially with the empathic codependent, I mean, we'll cave to that all the time. You're 100% spot on. Just from a personal experience, you really don't see anything wrong with it. You do think it's what you're supposed to do and you want to help. You want to help make it okay. Mm-hmm. You want to, mm-hmm. but, but it's, it's a gradual incline. It doesn't just go from zero to 60 and you're calling in for people. It just seems like there's a lot of insidious little stepping stones to get you there over time, over patterns, over, I mean, it, it's a whole, it's an amazing and complex system when you start to really explore it and look at your own stuff and your reaction to things. It's amazing. Well, and one of the biggest traits of a codependent is uh, problems with communication. Mm-hmm. And that's something I think we should highlight a little bit um, because I, to me, problems with communication is tied into two things, not knowing what you want in any given situation because you're so focused on pleasing others and wanting to do what the other person wants to please them. So oftentimes there's a miscommunication because of those two factors. And oftentimes the codependent will say, I don't even know how this happened. Like I, you know, wanted A, B, and C, but D, E, and F happened. And the other person will say, well, you never told me that. Mm -hmm. And the codependent is confused because the codependent is so used to picking up on subtle signals from the addict maybe in their life that they think everybody picks up on those subtle symbols. So they think that when they suggested doing A, B, and C, but they didn't, you know, the other person, the codependent didn't want to do that, that they would still recognize the tone or their rolling eyes or their looking away as clues that clearly the codependent didn't want to do that. But 
the average person isn't raised to pick up on those subtle cues, so they don't. So codependents need to work on clear communication. And I don't think I just communicated that clearly. So <laughs> no, I, I think you did. I, I really do. I think it, it came, it sounded better than I think it did in your head. If that, <laughs> but what, uh, <laughs> I, Are you people pleasing? <laughs> I, I, I'm really good at it just in case. So here's a practice. But, but what I thought about was, you know, I was like debilitatingly shy when I was a kid. I couldn't talk to people. I was, I mean, debilitating. It was horrific, so shy. But what, what you were talking about with the codependent traits, if you tie that in with empath, being an empath, so you have this little person that's coming in and learning to read all the cues of being in the situation. We've talked about this before. You know, it, the chicken and the egg, the empath and the codependent, right. But when you intertwine those two together, so, so much of what we do, we're all saying, oh, you need to find your voice. You need to put yourself out there. You need to, that is big fear stuff for a lot of us who have grown up with, if I say something, it's going to either be used against me, twisted, you know, the covert emotional abuse thing. I never said that. You must have heard me wrong. Why would you think I would do that? Master manipulators is an absolute understatement that when people start to mess with your, your mind, you, you become hesitant to communicate or, or speak your truth because you've been, and again, I have to say it, you've been so worn down when you have spoke up that it hasn't really gone in your favor. Right. Um, the cost-benefit analysis doesn't work. I, I just want to say two things to that point that you made, which was excellent. Uh, one, if just to any teachers listening to this show, I just want to take a little aside to say, if you have that really painfully shy kid in your class, please take a moment each week to just tell them one positive thing. You don't know the impact, the ripple effect that that will have. I was that painfully shy kid too, Denise. And I, I always got really, really good grades. I always studied. I never mm -hmm. caused problems in the classroom. I didn't daydream. I didn't talk to my peers. I was just, you know, the perfect invisible student and no teacher ever singled me out. And I kind of longed for that. You know, I would write these beautiful papers or these lovely poems and nobody would ever comment on that. And I remember when I got to college, a couple of teachers asked if they could keep my papers as examples for future students. And the first time that happened, I thought the teacher was hitting on me because I so strongly <laughs> did not believe him I'm not kidding like that's how I oh, it makes sense what's the motive here and then when I got to grad school one of my professors held me after class and she said um you know can I keep this paper and I said yeah thank you so much and, and she said you're a really good writer and I don't know what my expression was I just looked at her but she looked at me and she said oh my god you've never heard that have you and I mm. said no I haven't and she said, well, just remember it. You are an amazing writer. And I was like 22. And that was the first time I heard it. I've been longing to hear it. And it changed the trajectory, really, of like it, it made me recommit to my passion for writing. So I just want to say to anybody that knows a painfully shy kid, the, the, the simplest compliment, that was a good paper. You're a good writer. You're a really good student. Thank you for always you know, doing what I need you to do in this classroom. 
even if you're a coach or a neighbor, you know, just the simplest compliment. I think we shy people, we hold on to them and they start to build and take root within us. And then the second point I wanted to make, I, I read a book years ago um, called Eight Weeks to Optimum Health by Dr. Mm-hmm. Andrew Weil. Yes, I have that. And um, I refer back to that book a lot. And one of the things he says is change is hard, which we all know. But he says, if you start to quit something that's not working for you and you fall and you slip, like he, he compares it to smoking. Mm-hmm. He says, let's say that you decide to quit smoking. And after seven days, you start again. He said, rather than beating yourself up, take a day to give yourself credit for not smoking for seven days. Right. And that will start to build on your confidence. And the next time you're ready to make that change, maybe you'll stop for nine days. Right. And then you'll go back. But then the next time, maybe you'll stop for two months. And I feel like that can be applied to what we're talking about here. Maybe the first time you stand up for yourself, you're shot down, but that's okay because you did it and that means you can do it again. So you know what I'm saying? Don't get in that pattern of berating yourself. Get in that pattern of picking yourself up for what you have done. I want to add on to what you said about, you know, teachers. And that has been for all the years that I've taught that is always, I've always advocated for those students who have a hard time that the ones in the background, the wallflower, the ones who are invisible, that are just wonderful, kind, thoughtful people. And in the job that I've had for the last several years, I get to see hundreds of students every day. In the, and I, it's amazing when you watch someone, they light right up because, and it's a very gentle exchange, but I said to this, this young lady the other day, I said, that's a, you look gorgeous in that color. And it was, and and I'm old enough that it comes across like as a mother, grandmother thing. It's not like a weird teacher thing. And it comes out across as very genuine. And she blushed and she said, oh, well, thank you. It's my favorite color. And it changed our whole relationship. She started to open up. She started to tell me what she's doing after school. And I think people want to be seen. They want to know that they matter. And I said to her, she came in a couple days ago and I said, I really believe that uh, kind is the new call. And she said, I really hope so. And I thought we need to do this. We need to reach out to those people who we know are just, did you ever have this? I'm going to jump the tracks for a minute. When you were younger and shy and in school and you would give an answer because someone called on you and that people would act kind of surprised. Like you knew the answer because you never said anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yep, I can still feel my cheeks burning red when that would happen, too. I thought about this the other day. When did I stop blushing at everything? I used to have that horrific, you know, start in your chest, run right up like a fire train to the top of your head, beat red and stammer. Oh, it was terrible. And I thought, when when do you reach that age that you just stop reacting that way? Is it because you get, is it hormonal? Is it physical? Is it... Or is it just you get to the point where you don't let people get to you at that level anymore? Yeah, I think there just comes a point where you just don't give a shit anymore. Because there's just, you know why? That's what I came up with, too. There's shit to worry about. Yes, yes. Uh, which leads into boundaries. <laughs> that was a nice segue. Um, that was. Yeah, but because... As far as all the other aspects of communication and enabling and all these other things we do, 
weak boundaries are such a huge, huge issues for, issue for codependent people. You know, we'll say, I'm not going to tolerate that. And then we do it over and over and over again. Um, yeah. And I agree. One, one thing I want to make sure I get this in before uh, we end the show. And we, I know we have a little bit of time yet is after I did all the work and found that in myself and did, you know, I wrote incessantly, I did the 12 step, I joined, I did all of those things. Then it really upset me greatly is how many relationships that I saw were a mirror of codependency. Like I would see couples, I would watch. It was almost like it was all magnified for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Yep, and you can see it. And I think that's a sign of healing when you start to recognize it, not only in yourself, but in others as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I think setting boundaries can start really, really small. Really small. I don't think we have to start with huge boundaries. It's, it's a new feeling to set a boundary, and it's a scary feeling in the beginning. And so I think just starting small. If you're sitting in a meeting and your boss assigns you to a project that you're not comfortable with, that might be too big of a boundary in that moment mm-hmm. to stand up and say, I don't really want that project. So just start smaller. If you have a friend who says, hey, I've got to go on this work conference this weekend. Can you please take my kids this weekend? And you just don't have it in you to have those children in your home all weekend. Say it. Now, right. here's how I, this, this is how I learned to set boundaries is through role playing. And this really helped me. I would talk to my best friend and I would say, here's a situation that I'm struggling with. I don't want to say yes to this. What do I do? And she would say, well, let's just talk it through. And she would pretend to be the other person. And I would practice saying it. And then she would say, well, what if they say this? And then we practice that. And then she'd say, well, what if they say that? And then I'd practice a response to that. This helped me tremendously so that when I was, and I would have to psych myself up for the phone call or the lunch to say no to the friend. I mean, mm-hmm. literally, I'd have to like, I'd have to like have a strong cup of tea with the five-star caffeine rating on it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd have to like pray about it and like get all hyped up. And, um, and then I would just set my boundary. But I don't think I could have done that if I hadn't role-played it and, and worked it out in my head and practiced saying it out loud in a safe place first. That's an excellent point. That is a, and it's a nice strategy. <clears throat> and I want to talk about um, one of the other traits that are common between the two, you know, adults of adult children of addicts and codependents is problems with intimacy. Mm-hmm. Every time when I was in my twenties and I was learning about what it meant to be an adult child of an alcoholic, I would read that and I would go, well, that's not me. Like, you know, I love sex. I have no issue with sex. I, to me, I read intimacy as sex, physical stuff, physical, right? right? And it's not. Intimacy is about really, I think it was Wayne Dyer who said, into me, you see. That's what intimacy means. Mm-hmm. It's, it's that vulnerable part. It's letting people in and it's allowing yourself to be let into their lives as well. And so it's so much, it's really nothing to well, I don't want to say it's nothing to do with sex, but when they're talking about intimacy, it's about all your relationships. Right. And I think it's really important to start to switch and see that in that way. Um, 
I had to learn how to be a good friend through mm-hmm. developing intimacy. And it and it still is like I am I am such a good friend in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But yes. really like for Best example, of intentions, yes. Yeah, my my next door neighbor lost her little dog this week. Oh. And all week I've been like, I've got to get her like a plant and make a donation to the Humane Society. Have I done it this week? No. I've got to do that. And so I have had to learn how to be intimate in my relationships and I've done it with my damn iPhone. Mm-hmm. I like if I like if a friend calls me and says, Oh, I'm really worried on May twenty second, I've got, you know, a mammogram. I will put her on speaker while she's talking and I'll open up my calendar and May twenty first I'll set an alert to call my friend and wish her luck for the for the mammogram. On May 22nd, I'll write in my calendar an hour after the appointment an alert to call and see how it went. Because if I don't do that stuff, I get so caught up in my head, I'll forget. Okay, so I have to, like, to jump in here. Train myself. You, okay. okay. And you picked up your daughter at 11 o'clock last night? Yes. <laughs> Hello. I just have to put, it's not, I think sometimes, yes, we have these best events. I love that idea with the phone, by the way. Thank you for sharing that. But I'm also going to give you credit where credit is due. And you are an incredibly, incredibly busy woman pulled in a lot of different directions. So I just want to put that Thank in there. You. You're welcome. Yeah, well, we're recording this on a Saturday morning. And last night I was literally in my car from 3.30 to 11 dropping off three kids at different social events and picking up three kids at different social yes. events. And Denise goes, no wonder you listen to so many podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I'm always in the flipping car. <laughs> and it, it's, it's that stage in life, and it's amazing, isn't it, how many miles you can put on an automobile? One of my issues with intimacy, I think, was rooted in a lack of self-esteem. Because, for example... If, like, take, take the neighbor. I don't know this neighbor very well. I like her. I, you know, take her mail in when she goes out of town, but I don't know her that well. Now, the old, young Samantha would think, she doesn't want you knocking on her door with a plant. Mm-hmm. Like, she's just lost a dog. She doesn't need to hear from you. Mm-hmm. And so I would have these lovely thoughts to do these things, and then I wouldn't do them because I would feel, she doesn't want to hear from me. She doesn't even know me. Right. It wasn't until I went through traumatic events in my life. Like I'll tell you, when my ex-husband was in that coma for a month in that hospital, I learned more about life in that month than I think I've learned in 45 years of living. Mm-hmm. Because the things people did to help me, I realized it matters. Like all that shit matters. If you don't show up to a funeral, people remember. You don't go to a wedding, people note it. You don't go to visit them in the hospital when they're scared and sick. They they make note of that. Mm-hmm. You know, showing up. That's why at the end of the show, when I always say show up, do great work and share your light. The reason why I say show up is because that month in that hospital taught me how important it is to show up in mm-hmm. life for others. And I don't think that when people don't show up, I don't think it's um, that they're inconsiderate or they're not thinking. I think a lot of that not showing up is self-esteem. Yeah. 
not not feeling they're enough to be part of things. Yes. Very. I mean, very haven't good you ever thought that? I had a friend whose father died, and um, you know, we were friends. We weren't like super good friends, but we were friends. And his funeral was three hours away. And I don't, you know, I'm so grateful that I am intuitive, and I'm really grateful that I follow my intuition. And I kept getting this little nudge to go to that funeral. And I was like, she's going to think I'm crazy. Like, I've never even met her father. It's three hours away. But I did it. I followed my intuition and I went. And we are now incredibly close friends. And I think it's because of, like, she was so appreciative that I did that. Mm -hmm. Just those little gestures. And that is how we create intimacy, is by showing up in our friends' lives. I know that I keep quoting Melody Beatty, but it, I have her book in front of me, and she's also, she was such an impact on my, but she says closeness happens when our boundaries soften and touch another's borders, and that really goes along with achieving that intimacy. You have to put your guard down. You have to lower the drawbridge a little bit, and that's a really scary, vulnerable place to be, but it's a, a, an amazing and important faction of moving into any form of intimacy and building more relationship and depth with someone. I agree. Um, just, I, I want to jump into some things to, um, like, how to take care of yourself. And I, yeah. I think, you know, when you really get to that place where you honor your feelings, first about a situation where, when I, I'm going to touch back on the, you know, why would you feel that way? Why would you think that? Why would you, when you can take, and that's one of those little tiny baby steps that are amazing, is when you honor that feeling of, I feel this way, and that's okay. That is a, a big, big, wonderful gift to give yourself um, when you get angry. Because, you know, it's a stage of grief. I, I truly think yeah. this is about grief and honoring that it's okay to get angry, especially if, as the shy people per pleaser person who wanted to stay under the wire, please let me be invisible, which I think that's interesting. Both our lives correlate with that as well. Getting angry or showing anger isn't always an easy thing to do. Setting new goals for yourself. Yes. Oh, please do. I had such a hard time with anger, and sometimes I still do. I would tell my therapist, I said, my anger is like a hot potato. Remember that game, hot potato, yeah. hot potato? And I would <laughs> say, I have this ball of anger, and I have no one to give it to. Because I can't give it to my mom, because she's not going to receive it. She's not going to be like, oh, was I kind of mean to you growing up? I'm so sorry. We're not mm -hmm. going to have that. Cinderella moment, right? And it's not fair, I feel, to give my anger to the people around me because they're not the ones that caused it. Right. So I used to always say to Dr. Bennett, like, what do I do with that anger? I feel like something was taken from me in a childhood, not having a loving, receptive mom. I don't mean to paint her in such a bad light. She's not that bad, but I'm just using her as an example. Right. And I would say, like, what do I do with that anger? And he would always say, well, I don't know. You have to come up with that, but you have to do something with it. And I don't think that was the best answer, but maybe, maybe I'll have my Confucius moment to his Confucius answer soon. But I have learned to at least validate my anger, honor it, and sit with it for a moment. And some of the ways I process it do feel like a frustrated teenager. Like I do have a playlist called Mellow Music. Mm -hmm. And it got like glass animals and um, Ju Ju Julia Scott. Oh my God, I'm just forgetting her name. 
<laughs> I think it's Julia, Julia Scott. Anyway, um, Diane Shore, and, and I'll listen to like my sad music, and I'll write about my anger. Like again, I feel like a fifteen-year-old writing poetry about an ex-boyfriend, but it helps. Um, I exercise. I think that's a wonderful way to get rid of your anger. Go for a run. Go for a walk. Get you know physically get it out of your body. And I think also in a safe environment, sharing yes. your anger, you know, not spewing your anger, big difference, but having safe people in your life, whether it's a pastor, a minister, a therapist, a friend, um, a sibling, someone that you trust that you can share that anger with. And look, sometimes that's going to be your cat sitting next to you. And that's okay, too. Somehow you've got to get that anger out. You've got to share it. That's that's why I'm I'm such a huge 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 proponent of journaling. Is yeah. it's a safe place to really say what you feel, what you think, what's troubling you. You can cry. You can just get it all out on paper. And if you're afraid that someone will read it or take it or use it against you, shred it, burn it, get rid of it. But getting that anger, getting that that pent up emotion out of your body. If other people are going, they'll, they'll go and they'll run and they'll run and they'll run or they'll paint or they'll say whatever it, you, you made a, a, such an important point with that is it doesn't matter what you do, but get it the hell out of your body or you can't mm -hmm. heal and move forward. But get it out of your body in a way that you're validating it. Yes. Because like Carl Jung says, Anger, sadness, those are all our little shadow children. And they're just, they're just inside of us clamoring for attention. Mm -hmm. And damn it, they deserve that attention. And so in getting it out, you've got to share it in a way that's validating your right to that anger or that sadness. You know, there's this lovely Buddha story or Buddhist story, I should say. If you picture anger um, like a big ball of mud. Mm -hmm. If you put that ball of mud in a glass of drinking water, that glass of drinking water becomes undrinkable and cloudy and awful. But if you take that ball of mud representing your anger and you throw it into the ocean, the ocean is big enough to absorb it and heal it and cleanse it and carry it. And it doesn't change the ocean. And so if we keep anger inside of us, it muddies us up. It makes us undrinkable, unbearable. But if we take that anger out, and we share it with the world. Again, talking in very safe, healthy ways. <laughs> don't, don't be an aggressive driver like I used to be. Don't, you know, don't share it with the cashier trying to work her day job to get to her night job. Share it in healthy expressions. Then it's going to be like throwing that ball of anger into the ocean, and it's going to be accepted and released and healed. And you have a benchmark for it's an amazing, amazing, amazing feeling when you don't feel angry anymore, when you don't feel resentful towards that person who made your life a living hell. And I don't ever mm -hmm. say made me feel because I don't think anyone can make you feel anything. But when you're in that helpless place of why is this, why is this happening? Why won't he or she stop drinking or gambling or being promiscuous or whatever, you know, label we want to put on that when you get on the other side of it and you get past the anger and you just, you can get to that place of accepting saying, okay, I had to learn those lessons for some reason. And it's giving 
given me a level of empathy and compassion and a way to help other people who may be stuck there now. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, I just, do you agree with that? That once you're not angry anymore, what a difference it makes in your life. And it's like magic. All I of do. a sudden you wake up one day and it's like, holy shit, I'm not angry anymore. Um, right. But I do, I do want to say like, I'm, I'm still very much in my journey. You know, this isn't 2020 hindsight for me. And so I do want to say that sometimes that anger will pop up again and it'll be triggered oh, yes. by the weirdest thing that doesn't even seem connected to you. And just don't fall into that trap as I used to do in the past of judging myself and going, holy shit, like how many self-help books do I need to read? How many times do I need to visit poor Dr. Bennett? You know, like when is this going to go away? <laughs> but when you are journaling and have that awareness, it pops up less and less. But that goes back too to this this being a pro- progressive process. It's a progressive illness. Right before the full moon, I had a really heavy, emotionally heavy day. It was sad. It was it was overwhelming. A lot of old stuff from the past came to the surface. A lot of stuff around the codependent issues in my life, and it came out of the blue, and it kind of buckled my knees a little bit. And it didn't. The the beauty of it was it was one day. It wasn't day after day after day but it, it still comes back so when you say we're work in progress that's an incredible point to put to 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 add into this whole story or this whole conversation because we you can always keep moving and learning more it never complete well for me personally it's never completely gone away or i'll have it triggered by a situation in my work environment or an interaction with someone in the store or yeah and I think sometimes if you can flip it and see, you know, I, oh gosh, I went through the pity me, mm-hmm. you know, time for sure. But I think if you can flip it and see what a benefit the experience of being a codependent has brought to you, the compassion that is born in your heart as a result, and the way that you're able to move through the world, feeling that connection between all that is, to me, that's a gift that comes from being a codependent, a healed codependent. Yes. And it ties in with those same skills that we're trying to develop as empaths. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And as healthy empaths, not codependent or passive aggressive empaths. And there's a big yes. difference. Oh, huge. <laughs> yeah. And I think when you have all that awareness of, all, and you're in touch with your emotions, when you are triggered, you will start to recognize it. I had a triggered event happen this week and I called you, Denise, and -hmm. you said, I know this is really stressful, but when I tune into your energy, you feel really calm and confident. And I said, you know what? I do because I'm not going to allow this to wind me up like it has in the past. And that was, you know, an aha moment for me because I thought, okay, this is something that usually triggers me to kind of freak out and get stressed out, but I'm not going to do that this time. Here's Breaking what I'm going to do pattern. instead. Yeah. Okay. And also validating that you are on the right page and doing, making the right choices, which is all this, this codependent work, the empath work, the, it all comes back to that same thing of realizing you're okay. Well, all of us are yep. okay. We're all a work in progress. Yes. But I'm just really excited about um, how many people I talk to 
who are starting to find a sense of self and a connection to self that they've either never felt or they haven't felt in such a long, long time. Have you seen that I pattern agree. as well? Yes. Yeah. I think, I think people are really waking up and I think we're seeing it in huge waves. And I, I also feel that's why we're seeing so much turmoil in the world because it's causing a divide. You know, some people are refusing to wake up and so they're hunkering down in their black and white beliefs. Mm-hmm. But the other half are waking up and it's exciting. And I, I think we are each being faced with a choice. Do I wake up or do I hunker down in my old ways? And I think the people that we are connecting with on this show are waking up and it's, it's exciting. It can feel scary while you're going through it. It can feel different. But if you push through, I think it's exciting. Popped into my head when you were saying that was, I don't want anyone to think that if you're in a codependent relationship that I'm advocating to, to go or that you have to end that because a lot of people that do this, this work on their own codependency are able to bring healing into a relationship and bring it to a new level. It, it's not a, it's not that, that thick line in the sand of, if I do this, this is the only choice I have. You have to do what feels right for you. Right. But I think that's a really important point. My addendum to that is if you are in a codependent relationship, the key is to stop pouring all of your energy into that other person and to take all of your energy back into yourself and to heal yourself and strengthen and empower yourself. And then the stay or go question will resolve itself naturally and authentically. But, you know, like Dr. Phil says, nobody changes anybody else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he has that quote I love where he says, you can't change what you can't acknowledge. And so if the person in your life doesn't acknowledge that there's an issue, why, why are you investing all your time in trying to fix them and make them happier? Work on yourself. And then through the law of connection, that will affect and heal and help them. But it all starts with ourselves. That was beautiful. Well, I think we've exhausted this topic this week. What do you think? I think so. I think we brought through some really good conversation and hopefully food for thought for a lot of folks that are listening. Yay. Well, thank you, everybody, so much for listening. We have some really exciting new guests coming up for you. We also have our monthly community connection show coming up for you for June. If you have a question, a comment, or a story you'd like to share with us for our community connection show, you can email it to us, enlightenedempath at gmail.com, or you can send us a message on Facebook, Enlightened Empaths. And Denise and I are getting much better at posting on Facebook, so we really hope you join us on that community and check us out. We try to share really good links and articles and meditations and inspiring quotes with you all direct links to the show and some uh, show notes and books that were mentioned on the show and things like that. So we're trying to get much better (laughs) at all that stuff. If you like us, please consider telling a friend about our show and leaving us a review on iTunes. It helps us know what we're doing right and what we need to work on. And it helps other people to find us. Uh, In the meantime, we hope that you remember to show up, do great work and share your light. Have a great week, everyone. Bye-bye.